1: Rising sea levels,
2: extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: world in 10 brings you the big news stories of the day explained and analyzed by the times of london today with me jenny barsby on this episode the pope pleads for peace in gaza as mediators frantically work to reach a deal on a ceasefire between israel and hamas but time is ticking if there's to be any agreement before the beginning of ramadan on monday the 11th we'll find out what the sticking points are and if they can be overcome in time In a windy St. Peter's Square this morning, the Pope begged for peace in the Middle East.
2: Basta per Basta, per favore. He
0: asks, do we really think we will achieve peace? Please stop, he says. Let us all say together, please stop. But will it? All eyes are on Egypt as mediators continue to try and reach some sort of deal for a lengthy ceasefire in Gaza before Ramadan, which starts on the 11th of March. International pressure is growing on Israel after the Israeli Defence Force was accused of opening fire on Palestinian civilians as they queued for aid last Thursday near Gaza City. Israeli authorities deny that, saying most of the 115 casualties were killed in a crush. Now, regardless of the contested circumstances, what is clear is that confusion and hunger now reign in the Gaza Strip. Yesterday, the US began airdropping aid, but more is urgently needed. Times contributor Anshul Pfeffer, who's in Jerusalem, told us there's a lot more to a deal than just a pause in fighting.
2: The framework broadly as we know it now is a temporary ceasefire of about six weeks, which will include the entire month of Ramadan. In that period, there will be a release of uh, of dozens of Israeli hostages. There right now are over over 100 hostages still being held in Gaza. Not all of them will probably be released in this this agreement, but at least a few dozen. And in return, there will be a release of Palestinian prisoners, a ratio of about 10 Palestinian prisoners for every one Israeli hostage. And then the question is, how exactly... Will the ceasefire be seen on the ground? It's not just technically a cessation of fighting, but where will the Israeli forces actually be in Gaza? Will they pull out? Will there still be a cordon between different parts of Gaza? And that's something we're still waiting to see in the details.
0: The World in 10, of course, will keep you up to date on any developments in the Middle East as they happen. A week ago marked two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a war Vladimir Putin was convinced would be over in 10 days with minimal loss of Russian lives. Fast forward 738 days and the war rumbles on. We know the cost of Russia's invasion on Ukrainian lives, of course. In its latest report, the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine said 10,582 civilians have been killed while President Volodymyr Zelensky put the military personnel losses at 31,000. But what of the Russian cost? With the Kremlin closely guarding its data, getting an accurate picture of the Russian army's death toll has been difficult. But two independent Russian media outlets, MediaZone and Meduza, have been investigating. Using probate registry and inheritance records, they put the figure at between 66 and 88,000. Now, that's not including Russian military personnel from the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Drilling down further, and the figures show certain groups of Russians that have been disproportionately overrepresented. I'm talking here about Russia's ethnic minorities and so-called small nations. Times contributor Alida Noy has written about the investigation and told the World in 10 why that is.
3: Yeah, a lot of these people in Russia, they basically have been told they're essentially second-class citizens their entire life, and they don't have access to that many socioeconomic opportunities. So they might be enticed by the prospect of um, maybe seeing more money than they have seen in their entire lives before and also in these regions maybe like regional politicians might be playing a role Uh, people who might have political ambitions who want to supply men to to the front lines and and you know this will help their political careers in some way if they seem to be able to do this without much resistance. As for Russian
0: casualties a leader told us the majority of Russians still seem far removed from what's happening on the ground.
3: When we saw the drone attacks on Moscow last year, I got the impression Ukraine was quite eager to sort of bring the war home and wake Russians up a bit to the reality of the situation, when many of them don't actually feel that personally impacted by it. Um, But there are individual cases that are very much against it. And I've spoken to a couple of people who are adamant they would like rather get shot than be sent to Ukraine. But those people are surrounded by relatives and friends who are fervently in favour of the war. So it doesn't feel like a majority is against it.
0: But even if the true numbers of Russian military casualties are ever known, a leader says there'll be little sympathy from Ukrainians.
3: It's very hard for Ukrainians to sympathise too much with Russians right now it's the way they see it the reason they're being victimized by russia is because they stood up for their freedom and stood up against the cultures of violence and brutality and intimidation tactics corruption etc etc underpinning the current russian regime in a way that russians have not re- since the war started and it's a complicated issue because russians are of course suffering at the hands of their government and some of the most disadvantaged to suffering the most and they don't feel like they can speak out about it but Ukrainians have experienced atrocities on a massive scale. As the
0: head of Ukraine's Centre for Civil Liberties told a leader, the Ukrainian army has no choice but to continue fighting. If they stop fighting, there'll be no freedom, no democracy, no Ukraine. It's been more than 50 years since Ziggy Stardust hung up his guitar and yet the image of his spiky red hair and that mullet has endured. And in this week's Sunday Times magazine, the woman who created that iconic look, Susie Ronson, writes about her experience on the Ziggy Stardust tour. From groupies to wild costume changes, Susie was in the thick of it and my colleague Amy Gill was lucky enough to be able to ask her all about it.
1: Susie, it's such an honour to have you on The World in 10 with us. Firstly, tell me all about your sort of first impressions of David Bowie. It's a funny thing. Well, when I met
2: David, he wasn't a star. He was just a bloke in Beckenham. He'd had a hit, Space Oddity, and he he used to play at the local pub. And he he was playing folk music. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a David that he ended up being. I think I was... Very lucky because I was there during his transformation into Ziggy
1: Stardust. And now let's obviously talk about the hair. When you were creating that now iconic look, did you feel at the time that it was maybe something a little bit more special?
2: It was special because I was being creative. So I think it was wonderful to be creative on such an unusual looking person. I mean, not many people could carry off that hairstyle
1: and when it became, you know, this sort of big, iconic look, how how did you feel?
2: It's a complete shock. It's such a surprise that we're still talking about this bloody haircut. You know, it's been over 50 years since I did it. But, of course, it was the forerunner of all punk hairdos. It, it definitely was a statement. And I was lucky enough to be the one that did it,
1: yes. And the tour, of course, you know, you had such a unique viewpoint. You helped David with costume changes as well as styling his hair. What was it like being backstage during the Ziggy Stardust tour?
2: It was electric. It was electric. One costume change I used to do on the side of the stage because we had to do it within a guitar solo. So I'd be changing David's clothes while Mick's wailing not 10 feet from where we're standing. I mean, we got really good at it. I was close with David during that, you know, during those whole period because... I was the only one that really saw him during the show.
1: Susie, honestly, I could chat to you all day, but unfortunately that is all the time we have for. And our listeners can read an extract from your new book in today's Sunday Times magazine.
2: Sick play time.
0: Before I go, just a quick head back to Bahrain and another development in the Christian Horner saga. Despite the Red Bull team principal being cleared by an independent investigation into allegations of inappropriate conduct this week, his number one driver's dad is now demanding his sacking. Joss Verstappen says there's tension in the team while Horner remains in post. And he may have won the first race of the season, but I would not want to be in Max's shoes. Very, very awkward. Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on Top of the World with the help of the Times of London. We'll see you tomorrow.